This is Ashley Stone, and you're listening to The Comeback Podcast. I am so excited to have you on the podcast. We got introduced to you through somebody in Lauren's ward. I guess you shared your story at an event and Lauren's friend came back and said, Hey, you have to have Jen on the podcast. She (laughs) is so amazing. And I know that you are the founder of the turtle shelter project, right? Yes. Tell us a little bit about what that is. Okay, so the Turtle Shelter Project is a nonprofit organization that I started about six and a half years ago. We're a service project that makes kind of like survival vests for people who are living on the streets. The technology is really cool because it helps the person who's wearing it stay warm even if they get wet. So what we do is we make these foam insulated vests and they will keep a person warm even to zero degree weather, even if they're wet. Super life-saving for people that are living on the streets. So. That is so cool. Yeah. And I know that your your purpose behind starting this is kind of tied to your own personal story. Yes. And I'm very excited to to hear more about your story. Tell me kind of where, where it all began for you. Would love to just start at the beginning. So I grew up in Mountain Green, Utah. Which is so beautiful. It's like the coveted place to live yes, these days. so beautiful. Yeah. It probably wasn't as coveted when I lived there, but no, if actually maybe it was. It's always been a very gorgeous place to live. But I grew up there for, for the majority of my adolescence, I guess. I had seven brothers and one sister, So, and I was uh, the third oldest. Uh, my family was really active in the church. I struggled in school. I struggled with Um, the social aspect of things. I didn't have a lot of friends in school. As far as like when I was younger, I was bullied a lot, Um, just really struggled to make friends. I felt kind of like an outsider at school, but I also kind of felt like an outsider at home because I was the only girl. So I was super different. So yeah, I struggled a lot. I definitely was taught the gospel. I always believed that the church was true, but I struggled having a testimony myself. I I had some things happening to me when I was younger that was kind of traumatic, caused me a lot of shame and went on for several years, developed habits that caused me even more shame. I kind of believed that because of everything I knew about myself, that I was not worthy of having a relationship with God. I had a a warped understanding of repentance. What I believed was that if you did something wrong and then you repent for it and then you do it again, it's 10 times worse. And the first repentance, I guess, didn't count. Really early on in my life, I just believed I was buried under this mountain of sin that I couldn't get out from under. Everything in my life felt really dark. I I struggled with depression. I think my first thoughts of suicide started when I was around seven years old and kind of have been plagued with that for most of my life. So that's been really hard for me. The girls that I went to church with always appeared to me like they had these really strong testimonies and these really amazing relationships with God. And I don't know if that was me just looking at them and seeing, wanting what they had, I don't know, or if it was a judgment on my part, but, but I always felt like I was just really lacking having that strong connection with God because just all the shame that I was feeling and everything that was going on in my life. By the time I turned roughly, about the time I got into high school, I started really going downhill super bad. I guess I could back up just a little bit. So when I was in elementary school, I think that's when my very first addiction started. I became addicted to the library. I know it sounds really weird, but I call it an addiction because it made my life unmanageable. I was going to the library five or six times a day, checking out as many books as I could, reading them all by recess, and then at recess, go get more, and at lunch, go get more. Like, it was, like, ridiculous. 
And I was always trying to get into somebody else's story because I hated my life and the way that I was and almost like just wanted to get into somebody else's world. And I was lying about my grades. I was lying about doing my homework, everything like that. Finally, my librarian said, Jen, you can come here one time a day and that's it. And I thought my life was over. <laughs> So I started, you know, doing what most addicts do. I improvised and I started just getting bigger books um, that had a lot more pages and smaller words. And anyway, so I kind of became a reading addict. It was a little bit weird, but so yeah, that kind of carried on through most of my junior high and everything. I My books were my best friends. So by the time that I got into high school, I kind of just, I gave up trying to fit in with people. I gave up trying to to find friends. I cut all my hair off. My depression was super bad and I stopped trying to repent. I stopped trying to reach out to God. If it's this hard, why bother? And every time I would, you know, every time I would repent, swear I would never do it again, I would always screw up. And so it just kind of, after a while, it just felt so hopeless. So I just kind of just became spiritually lazy and just stopped really even trying to reach out. I would go to like young women's activities. I would go to like you know, women's camp. I would go youth conference. I'd always pack this uh, lunchbox full of cigarettes and I would bring that with me because the idea of going for three or four days without a cigarette, just, I, I didn't know how that was even possible. So, and it was kind of cool because my leaders, they were always just really welcoming to me and treated me like they were just glad I was there. I was always really grateful for that. I reached out a lot to my young women's leaders. I had some really, really good ones that, that were very good to me. And, and it really helped me throughout, you know, the beginnings of the hard times I was going through as a, you know, as an adolescent, but. Isn't it crazy uh, how those leaders showing love and saying, you are welcome here. I can relate to that smoking marijuana at girls camp like that is pretty <laughs> bad but I 100% did that my girls camp leaders and young women leaders they didn't I mean if they would have found out about that I would have been in big trouble for sure but yeah. <laughs> but and they knew kind of what I was up to but they the fact that I always felt loved by them yes. is something that changed my life and also just another thing real quick is that I had an aunt. Well, I have an aunt, but I was a heroin addict. She let me live in her casita and she never made me feel less than she loved really? me through every second of that. And I just think about her and I think about young women's leaders. And so yes. if there's any young women's leaders listening to this, yes. I've seen your girls feel loved despite what they might be doing you never know how that will change their life forever. Oh, you just gave me the chills. No, it's totally true. That was one thing that I always felt like, you know, they all knew what I was up to, too. I mean, you couldn't get away from the fact that I smelled like an ashtray, you know, <laughs> but I would tell people, oh, I don't smoke. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But they, they always just made me feel so good, so loved, just so accepted. And I never understood why, because I felt like I was a train wreck. I felt so much shame and I developed a really serious cutting problem when I turned 15. I felt so messed up and ugly on the inside that I almost wanted my outside appearance to match how I was feeling inside, just messed up and horrible. And I hid it very well the best of my ability wore a lot of long sleeves in the summertime stuff like that but I literally hated every single thing about myself a lot of it was that I felt like I was just this constant disappointment to God it wasn't exactly how other people were feeling about me this is what I believed God was feeling about me and so I hated myself for ruining everything that he had given to me and didn't know how to change it. Do you know what I mean? Basically that kind of behavior just kind of got worse and worse and worse for me. I ended up dropping out of high school in 11th grade. 
my parents moved up to Brigham City or Honeyville. I went to school for about two weeks and couldn't really handle it. And so I moved out and moved to Ogden in with a bunch of college girls and started hanging out with the missionaries. I had some missionaries that were really good to me and they were teaching my friend the discussions. And so that was kind of cool. But I always was gravitating to people who I knew had testimonies because I just wanted to feel that because I couldn't feel it for myself. And so I was kind of latching on to other people that that I felt had good connections with God, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. I wanted that. I just didn't know how to get it for myself and felt like all of my choices just kept messing me up and interfering. And it was like, I felt like I just couldn't be good. You know what I mean? Like I was born just broken or born bad or something like that is, is kind of how I felt. When I turned 18, I tried weed for the first time. I didn't have anyone really peer pressuring me into doing it. I had a friend that wanted to try it and I tried talking her out of it. I was like, no, you'll get addicted. She really wanted to try it. And so I didn't want her to do it alone. And so I went with her and I was the one who ended up the addict. I was hopelessly addicted from my very first hit. And a lot of it was, I suddenly didn't have any desire to cut myself anymore. And that was a strong pull for me. I fell deep and hard into that addiction. And within one year, I was full-blown meth addict. I went through several rehabs. The first one I went to was about 30 days. I was impatient and got out and didn't really know how to live life outside of that wholesome bubble that I just, I relapsed the next day and it didn't stick at all. I got to the point where I ended up homeless at 19 years old and ended up going back home to my parents' house and didn't have any drugs up there. And so I did what I learned about in rehab and I learned that painkillers were a a thing and my dad had a ton of them. And so, you know, he was in a helicopter crash in Vietnam when he was in, he was a military guy. And I found some pain pills in his cupboard one day and just started taking them and fell in love. And it took about three months to go through his entire supply, but I did. And I didn't realize that he needed them. You know, one day I woke up and I saw a pill bottle on the counter that was empty. And it said, I hope whoever took these needed them more than I did. And that was like, it didn't occur to me until that very moment that like, He only took his pain pills when he really, really needed them because he wanted them to work. And so that's why he had a stockpile is because he had them for emergencies. And I believed in that moment that I was the scum of the earth. And I decided that as long as I was asleep, I couldn't make a mistake. And so I started um, just taking whatever I could. I'd wake up in the morning and just grab a handful of like Benadryl and just take it and knock myself back out because I just felt like if I was asleep, I couldn't do anything wrong and I couldn't make my family mad. And my addiction got really bad. I was drinking Listerine. I was drinking cough syrup. You know, after all the narcotics were gone, it was, I resorted to whatever I could get my hands on. I would have drank gasoline if I thought that that would help. And then one day I went to jail for possession of tobacco Technically, it wasn't possession of tobacco. It was failure to appear, but that was the original charge. And I was in jail for five days. And I realized in that five days that, man, I stayed clean. And so when I got out of jail, I was just like blown away at like how how I had stayed clean, not realizing, you know, there were other factors. I was going to AA meetings in jail, stuff like that, you know, but I had this bright idea that I was I needed to go to prison. And so I decided to forge a check and go buy drugs. As soon as the drugs were gone, I went to the police station and I said, I'm here to go to prison. And I kind of told them what I had done, that I'd stole a check from my brother and forged his name. And they said, okay, you go home and get get some sleep. (laughs) Come back on Monday and then we'll take your statement. 
and it was crazy. Um, I didn't ever spend one day in jail for that. My parents kind of helped. They got my bishop involved and he started looking for a rehab for me. And one day he calls and said, hey, I found a rehab, but it's only for homeless people. And my dad said, well, what a coincidence. You're homeless now. And so it was like, oh, okay. So I went to this um, rehab in, in Salt Lake called Volunteers of America. And by the time I went to court, my judge was very, very good to me. He, he realized that I probably shouldn't be in prison. That probably isn't where I belong. So he made me get a lawyer. And by the time that I you know, got through the court process, I was a resident at the Salvation Army program in Salt Lake, which I heard that's where you went. Yes. Oh yes. my gosh. Yeah. So yeah. So Salt Lake Salvation Army, um, I was there for about a year and it was like such a cool program. Yeah. What I liked about it was, and I don't know if it was the same for you, but I loved that it gave you just enough rope to hang yourself, but you could like leave and come back like but you had a safe place to stay you had UAs you had to work every day I don't know I really liked it but that's where I was first introduced to the homeless community Mm. um, was because I worked at the soup kitchen and that was my full-time job while I was there and I loved it I fell in love with the people while I was in the Salvation Army program we had about seven residents that year that had left left treatment and they found their bodies frozen to death on the streets of Salt Lake. And so in one year we had seven that had passed away. You know, they just found them in a park. They'd been drunk. Um, You know what I mean? And so it was devastating to me because these were people that I got to know and love and they just, they were beautiful people and they just had this problem kind of like I did, you know? That was my first experience with getting to know the homeless and my love for them. I met my husband in in treatment, which is a bad place to ever meet a spouse, at least for me. I got married. It lasted seven years. It was a total disaster. It was through that relationship I started. I got back on drugs. My husband was sexually abusing me, and it was devastating to cope with it, I started using meth again so that I could stay awake around him. That got my addiction off and running again. I remember the day that I found out he what he was doing to me, the shame and the devastation I was feeling and how humiliated I felt. I remember not knowing what to do. It, it was like I felt this tidal wave of emotion just chasing me. And meth was the only thing that kept me running faster than it. Um, I felt like if that tidal wave caught up with me, it was going to literally crush me and destroy me. And I just, it, it was, meth was the only thing that kept me running faster. And so that's what I, I dove into. I threw away my bed. I stayed up literally for about seven years. I would fall asleep, but it was just whenever my body would just give out. And so you know, looking back, it was kind of dangerous living that way. I had been working for my dad um, with a fence company. And when everything in my marriage kind of fell apart, I ended up losing that job. And then I lost my house. And so now I was homeless. I did end up prosecuting my husband because I got to this point where I realized that if he was willing to sexually abuse his wife, he would probably sexually abuse anybody if he was given the opportunity. And so he ended up going to jail for that. So, and then I got divorced and my addiction just was full force. Every single person who knew me uh, knew that I would rather die than quit using. That was not an option for me. And honestly, I would rather die than come down. I cared more about using drugs than I cared about food, than I cared about anything else. Every single thing in my life revolved around drugs or it wasn't a part of my life. I had kind of messed things up with my family to the point where they really didn't want a whole lot to do with me. And I totally understood why I was, I was a disaster. I sold crystal meth for quite a while. And then one day I I kind of had an interesting experience with how I stopped selling crystal meth. 
I was hanging out with my little brother one day and I found out that he was using heroin and he was 15. And I was just devastated. And my brother was kind of my favorite person in the whole world. The idea of anyone giving him drugs just made me so mad. And I just couldn't believe anybody would give him drugs. And the spirit hit me hard when I had this experience because it was like, who do you think you are, Jen? Every single person that you sell meth to is somebody's brother, somebody's sister, somebody's daughter, somebody's mother, father. They're loved deeply by someone, but especially by God. And so that was pivotal for me. I had such a bad habit at the time that I couldn't like fathom not getting high, but I couldn't justify selling drugs to anyone anymore. And so when I made that decision, God kind of gave me a whole nother way to make income that wasn't, didn't involve committing crime or, or hurting people. And so I thought that was kind of a cool, a cool thing. So income was never my problem after I made the decision to stop selling drugs. Um, God did take care of me after that. Um, my habit didn't quit though. I kind of went on for, for several more years getting high. And then I had a near death experience one day that kind of, kind of planted a huge seed in my life or in my heart. I had this near death experience. I, I call it my moment of clarity because I, things just started becoming really clear to me at that moment. Um, my heart was kind of flipping out. And so I thought I was going to die. And the, the idea of dying was so, I was so terrified of it because I didn't want to be in God's presence. Actually, just let me back up just a tiny bit uh, because this kind of ties into this moment of clarity part. I went to see my bishop a, about a year before I had this moment of clarity. I went to see my bishop because I desperately wanted help. I just didn't know how to get it. Um, I wanted to change. You know what I mean? Like I always wanted that testimony or that relationship with God and just thought I was too messed up to get it. So I went to see my bishop one day and he told me to go home and read Alma chapter 36 five times in a row. So, you know, I was high on math. But I went home and I read it and it was all about the sons of Messiah and Alma, how they were going out and they were taking people away from the church. And then this angel appeared to them and Alma kind of fell into this coma, I guess, for, for three days. And he had this experience where he was tormented by his sins and that idea of being in God's presence one and made him want to cease to exist. And then he remembered his father teaching him about Jesus Christ. And started begging Jesus Christ for his life and completely changed his his whole life and became this prophet and spent the rest of his life bringing people back to God, which is kind of similar to the experience I was having. In this moment of clarity, I realized that was my fear was being in God's presence. And I remember the minute that, that like all these things started becoming clear to me. And it scared me even more because I've heard people have a moment of clarity before they die. So I was even more scared that I was going to die. But one of the things that became super clear to me was, you know, the reason I was afraid of being in his presence was because I, and this was such a blasphemous thought to me, but I realized the reason I was so afraid of being in his presence was because I believed my actions in using drugs and as in going along my life, the way that my actions were saying to God and to the world that I could do a better job than him. And I didn't realize like that I had made that meth. Like I said, I believed in God, but, but my actions didn't show I believed in God. My actions showed I believed in crystal meth or I believed in me. Like I believed in whatever solution that I came up with to, to solve my issue. And that was huge for me because I realized like that's what my actions were saying to him and to the world. And then I realized that, you know, it was almost like this clarity came to me like, Jen, you're not afraid of going to hell. You're so afraid of going to hell. But what you don't realize is hell isn't a destination. Hell, this was the huge part for me. Hell is a place that you're living in today. And then it was like, I saw this prison just kind of come over my, 
my body like these bars. And I saw that like I was living and I had been living in a prison of my own making for 38 years. And it was all because of my choices and the things that I was doing. And this judgment I had towards myself. I was so afraid of God's judgment, but what I didn't realize was my own judgment was putting me in this prison because I felt like I could never be anything. I could never, I could never be the daughter with the divine identity that I was taught about in young women's. Like I wasn't capable of it because all I did was mess up. And so that was huge for me. And then the thing, and I literally felt like my heart was just going to stop and I could see this keyhole in the prison wall and it was the shape of the Christus and I suddenly remembered everything that I had read about in that Alma chapter 36 and my communication with Christ just started in that moment like please save me from this I need help and I don't know you know like I don't want to die but I don't know what to do and and it was like I had this realization in that moment that everything would be okay if I were to die in that very moment everything would be fine but I could settle for it just being fine, or I could have this. And it was almost like for this brief moment, I left my body and I was able to like just see everything from God's perspective for this blip of a moment. And I could never explain in words what I was shown. But all I know is I was shown a destination that I wanted more than I want, wanted where I was at in that moment. Everything would be fine if I, if I stayed where I was at. But did I really want that? You know what I mean? So powerful. And it was. I could write about it for 20 years and never even get to a fraction of the things that I was shown in that moment. It was beautiful. But see, one thing that when I went back to my bishop after reading that Alma chapter 36 five times in a row, when I went back to him, he said to me, do you know why I wanted you to read that five times? And I said, well, no, I don't. I don't understand why. And he said, I needed you to know, I need you to know that there is nothing you can do that is worse than Alma. And that was huge for me because like, look at what Alma was able to do and look at all he had done and look at what he became because God, because he changed. So I don't know that those two stories kind of really tie into each other really well because that it planted a huge seed for me. My addiction didn't stop at that point. I used drugs for another five years. I was shown a destination. I just didn't know exactly how to get there yet. So I kind of went along and I, I got to this point though in my addiction, I guess, where I couldn't go on living the way that I was living. I, I was homeless. It was a really brutal winter. It was like single digits that year. I mean, it was so cold and it was so miserable and I couldn't, nothing was working. The drugs weren't working. Nothing was working. And so I called my friend and I had this friend who always made time for me. She never judged me. She knew I was an addict, but was always really good to me. And I called her this one day and I found out that she had passed away that morning. And I'm like, uh, what are the odds the one person who you know always was there for me what are the odds she dies the day I call her and just just and I'm just a little bit too late what are the odds of that and I was devastated and I remember when I heard that she had passed away I felt this hand kind of squeeze my heart and I heard these words say go to the funeral I've left a friend for you I've never had anything like that happen to me before, but I went to this funeral and this lady approaches me at her grave and she said, are you Jen? And I said, yeah. And she said, oh, I'm so glad I found you. Our friend has had breast cancer for the last several months. She didn't want you to know because she didn't want you to worry about her, but she made me promise I'd be your friend after she died. And I want to give you my number. And if you ever need to talk, just call me. And, you know, like that just felt like the beginnings of a miracle. So a few days later, I sent her this text and I just said, have you ever felt like you've made so many mistakes? You've hurt so many people that you've dug a hole so deep and so dark that it is impossible to ever find the light. 
and she said, where are you? And she came and found me. I was hanging out at this hotel in Ogden. It's like 1130 at night. And she picks me up and I get into her car and I just threw up on her. Not literally, but I just like all of the stuff I was going through came out. I told her I was hopelessly addicted to meth. I didn't know how to stop. My life was just this disaster. You know, I'm totally mortified sharing all of this with her because, you know, it's not really the first impression you want to make on a brand new friend. Like, want to be my best friend? I'm a total mess. And I fully expected her to just let me out of the car and be like, you know, have a nice life. Good luck with all that. But she didn't. We got to talking and I told her, you know, I've heard that God's the key, but I don't get it. What does it mean to give something to God? What does that even look like? I will always and forever be grateful for her for her words in this moment because she said, I don't know, ask him. In that moment, I was a little frustrated because it was like, I want you to give me the answer. Like you have this relationship with God and I don't. And I don't think God's ever going to talk to me. And I want you to give me the answer. It, and it was crazy because it was like she could read my mind. And she said, Jen, I don't know how it is you're praying, but I think you're doing it wrong. You've got this idea in your mind. You have to say things in a certain order. You have to use certain language. You have to do these gestures. And I, I mean, that's all good. But it isn't like that. You just have to imagine that God is sitting right there next to you. Imagine that you are the most important thing in his whole world. Talk to him as if he's your father. And it was just kind of hard for me to imagine because I didn't have a super great relationship with my dad coming up to that point. And, you know, I kind of thought God was this punishing God that you screw up. He's just going to punish you and you, you always have the consequences. And and I said, well, okay, I've ha I have been praying. I've been praying every day for a whole year. I would I pray every single day that he'll take away my addiction because I heard in an ARP recovery meeting once that if you ask God to take it away, he will. Isn't that good? And she said, Jen, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard anyone say in my whole life. She said, God doesn't work that way. Like he's not going to just take away all the natural consequences that have occurred from you moving heaven and earth to say hi every day just because you're asking night. Yeah, God's a God of miracles, but he's not just going to take it all away just because you're asking him to. You've got to do your part. You've got to do that action, you know. You know, Tad Callister a few years ago in general conference gave this talk about skydiving. He gave, It was about the atonement of Jesus Christ, which was the thing I was struggling to understand. But he, he gives this analogy of skydiving, how if you jump out of a plane without putting your parachute on because you're so excited about that rush, um, the minute you're in the air, you can realize, uh-oh, <laughs> I just made a really dumb choice. I'm so sorry. You can beg God to like take away the law of gravity. I'll never do it again, I promise. You know, all that. But that's like a consequence that's locked in, you know? And he can't just take it away just because you're asking him to. Like, but the way the atonement works is if somebody saw and knew you well enough to know that you were probably going to make that dumb choice and put that parachute on your back without you noticing. And the minute you're in the air, you can realize, oh, my gosh, I can land safely, but I have to do my part and just pull the ripcord and then you can land safely. He doesn't take away the law of gravity, but he provides another way for you to land safely. Anyway, that's kind of what comes to my mind when I think about this conversation I was having with her. A few days go by and I get to the point where I just realize I don't want to do this anymore. I don't even want to be alive anymore. And, you know, I woke up one morning, it was just so cold and, and I was just hurting and I just decided right then and there I was going to end my life. And randomly somebody sends me this song by David Archuleta. And it's the song called Glorious. If you haven't heard it, listen to it. But I'm you know, pretty sure a lot of people have heard it. But it's amazing. And he talked all about how we all have times in our life where we feel aimless and we can't see where we belong and we can't see where we fit. And life is this beautiful symphony. We, we all have parts that we contribute to make that melody the masterpiece that it is. And if you haven't figured out what your part is yet, just keep listening. And you'll figure it out. In that moment, I just translated that to 
just stay on the planet a little bit longer. You haven't figured out what your part is yet. And so I decided I was just going to give this prayer thing a chance. And I drove my truck. I was living in my truck or in the storage unit and drove my truck over to my storage unit. I just turned off the car. And I just turned to God as if he was sitting in the seat next to me. And I just started pouring my heart out to him. And I started telling him all the things that I'd done wrong and all these things that I was struggling with internally, all these things about me that I hated that were causing me so much shame. All of it was coming out. And I mean, this, this prayer went on for a good 30 minutes and it was like the most detailed confession I've ever spoken out loud in my whole life up to this point. And it was all coming out. And I was trying to initially just lay out all the reasons why I, I was sorry. I was so sorry that he had given me a body and all I did was mess it up. And all I did was ruin things. And all I did was break promises. And, and I, I was hoping if I could lay out all the things that I'd done, that maybe he would think, you know, yeah, you're right. The, your track record's been horrible. I think you should kill yourself. You know, that was what I was hoping to get out of that conversation. And, you know, as I'm praying and, and crying and all the snots coming out of my face and my face just swells up unrecognizable and it my shirt was just soaked with snot and and I I like caught this glimpse of myself in the mirror and it just startled me because it was such an ugly cry but I just got so scared in that moment that someone's going to come around the corner and they're going to catch me looking like an idiot falling my head off talking to no one and that they would laugh at me and that idea just was like too hard to to handle and so um i started hearing this voice in my head just say jen come on you knew this wasn't gonna work god doesn't want to hear from you god hates you you ruin every single thing that you touch just end it and so i went to go start my truck and i just stopped and i turned to god and i just said Heavenly Father, are you real? Do you know my name? Do you know all these things that I've done and everything that I'm struggling with? And does it, does it matter to you? Are you concerned with me? And I've never felt an answer to a prayer before this moment, but instantly I just felt this rush hit me so hard it was almost like I could see the wind it hit my hair and I, I could feel it like it was just he ran to me so fast and I felt that same hand just squeeze my heart and I felt these chills throughout my body exactly how I feel right now I've never been able to share this story without feeling it exactly the same way and I felt myself lifted into his hand and I just heard this voice say Jen do you know how long I've been waiting for you to just give me a chance to help you with all that you're going through. I promise I understand you're going through a lot. And I promise if you hold on to me, whatever it is that you have to face and whatever it is you have to fix, hold on to me and we can face it together. I've got you. And that moment was so pivotal for me because that's when I realized God was real. He did know my name. He knew me personally, cared about me. And I already was the daughter with the divine identity that I was taught about in Young Women's. And I didn't even have to do anything to be that. Like that was already who I was more than anything. And so when I announce myself in recovery meetings, that's what I say. And I announce myself always as a daughter of God before I say anything else about me because I know first and foremost that is the identity that will always matter before anything else. Nothing else matters. There's nothing on this earth I can accomplish that's better than being a daughter of God. So for me, that that's huge. The next question that I asked Heavenly Father in that moment was, if he would just give me the desire to change. Because I suddenly realized I had this epiphany that if I could shift all of that energy that I put into chasing drugs and to chasing destroying myself, if I could shift that into 
want him more than I wanted to get high. If I could chase God the way I chased my drug dealer, like it just blew my mind that I could have a life that I didn't even ever fathom could be possible. But I had to want him more. I had to want him more than I wanted to destroy myself. It turns out that really was the key. Within three months, I found myself in a recovery program. It was an outpatient program. I went to this emergency preparedness conference and learned about this stuff called foam clothing technology. And they were saying, if you had access to it, you could stay warm, even if you're wet. And I just got so excited thinking about like all the people who could survive if they had just had access to this stuff. And I got super excited. I was just going to go buy a bunch, give it to all my friends and everybody would be happy and warm. And then I heard how much it cost. And it was like $800 for a sleeping bag, $780 for a full head to toe suit. And I literally felt my heart break in half because at that price, only rich people can afford it. And then they buy it, take it home and set it on a shelf and wait for their emergency, which may or may not ever even happen. And I remember just my experience with the homeless and as a, being a homeless person, like just, you know, you can't escape it and it is so miserable. And so I thought, man, this is the coolest solution I've ever heard about. I left that presentation and I was very, very angry <laughs> that technology that cool existed, but nobody could get it that really, really needed it. And so I kind of became obsessed with this idea to learn how to make it. And as I was leaving that presentation, I saw this other presentation going on in the next room. And it was this lady, she said, I Googled the word repentance and this is what came up and it showed people in agony and stuff like that. And I was just like, oh my gosh, that is exactly what I felt going through repentance. And she said, this is what it really is. And it shows you know, this person standing on the top of a mountain, just freedom and like, oh my gosh, relief. And it's so happy and joyful. And I just, I just thought it was interesting learning about foam clothing and then walking by that and then leaving, realizing like I needed to learn about repentance and stuff like that before I could make this foam clothing dream kind of ever become a reality. Wow. And so, um, so basically after I, learned about this. I went home and I said this prayer and I never thought to pray this way, but I asked God how he was doing today. I kind of poured my heart out. I was telling him how heartbroken I was feeling that people were mean to him and that people blame him for the way that their life is and that people are mean to each other. And there's all this fighting in the world. And I just wanted to know what I could do to help him have a better day and to um, show him how grateful I was that he rescued me when I didn't deserve it. And about an hour later, I got this, these words came to my mind and it was like, Jen, I think it's adorable that you care about my broken heart, but please remember who I am. I'm the healer of all things that are broken. And the thing that's hurting my heart is not the way people are treating me. It's the way that my children are treating each other. And so you have this idea to learn how to make this technology and get it into the hands of people who need it the most. And it's a good idea. I want you to run with it. I want you to talk to the tops of organizations that help homeless people, tell everyone who will listen that this technology exists and so many people will think you're crazy. And you just have to remember this idea is way bigger than you, but it is not bigger than me. And if you keep me as your boss, keep me as the person in charge, I promise I will send you every resource, every helping hand you need in order to make this a reality. So first thing I did was I bought the $780 suit. I bought the suit and then I kind of went through the next two years of my life kind of telling everybody who would listen about, about my idea and stuff. And so many people did think I was crazy. And it took about two years before I finally found someone who saw the merit in what I wanted to do. And coincidentally, it didn't happen until I came back to church. One day I was in rehab it was, it was right before I got out of rehab. I was in rehab for about nine months, but I had this note on my door saying there was a Relief Society dinner and I, you know, they didn't even have my records. So I don't know how I got this notice on my door, but I really felt like I needed to go to it. And so I, I went to this dinner and I sat down at this group and I just started talking all about my idea to help the homeless. And I was in rehab and all this like, and it was like, 
not like me. I'm the most shy person ever. Usually if I go to a social setting where I don't know anyone, I'm in the corner. I'm not looking at anybody. I'm like not making, but I sat down at this dinner and just told everybody all this stuff. Oh my gosh, I'm in rehab and I haven't been to church for 25 years. And I have this idea to make homeless stuff. And I mean, it was just crazy how I felt like I had walked into a family. Everyone was so nice to me and just so engaging. And it was just crazy. And I left that dinner and, you know, got the number to my bishop and everything. And then two weeks later, I graduated from rehab. And then three days after that, my little sister died of a heroin overdose. Mm. I had my bishop's number and I reached out to him and just said, I feel like I'm supposed to meet you. And I went and I had this conversation with him and, and then I never went back. I never went back to church because I didn't know anybody and I felt dumb. I don't know why, but a couple months later, I got this text from this girl who had been sitting at my table and at the dinner. And she said, I've been assigned to be your visiting teacher. And like, it's crazy because I've been looking for you for months. You came and then you disappeared and nobody knew who you were. And I'm just so excited to be your visiting teacher. And um, I just wanted to know if you wanted to come to church with me. And what was so weird is I had been praying for a friend, <laughs> but I didn't tell anybody that. A healthy friend and so it was just kind of cool so I started coming back to church with this with this girl it was kind of cool because it took about two years before I finally met my bishop's wife and told her about my project I had been coming back to church for about six or seven months so I almost had two years of sobriety but I went to go try and get my temple recommend and my bishop wouldn't give it to me until I learned how to do family history which I thought was weird. But anyway, so I had to go work with his wife every week and did this for a couple months, learning family history. And one day I was over there and somebody showed up with a sewing project for her. And I said, wait, you know how to sew? And she's like, yeah, I make costumes for dancers. And, and I said, oh my gosh, I have this cool idea. And I told her all about my idea. And she, she was like, oh my gosh, that sounds amazing. I will totally help you come up with a pattern and all this stuff. She went and grabbed her journal and she said, you know, I wrote this in my journal that I wanted an opportunity to live the law of consecration and use my time and my talents in order to do something meaningful for the children of God. And you told me about this idea and I truly believe that this is it. This is an answer to that prayer for me. So after church one day, I wore my full head-to-toe suit. It was 10 degrees outside, and I broke the ice on a stream in my neighborhood, and I laid down in it. And I used to say it was the dumbest idea I ever had. And then someone said, Jen, you were a meth addict for 20 years. I'm pretty sure you made a lot of dumber choices. It was very good feedback. But yeah, I got out of the water. I was freezing, and I warmed up within 45 seconds. I knew in that moment that that technology was super, super, super powerful. Like it really could save lives. This lady who, who helped me start this organization, um, my bishop's wife, started the Turtle Shelter Project. And we basically incorporated on my second year um, sobriety birthday. What was so cool about it taking two years? So people that use drugs, especially meth, it burns out that uh, feel-good chemical that your body makes you know, it turns it on a full blast and then just burns it out so your body doesn't make it anymore. And it takes about 18 months to two years before your body starts creating that on its own again. And it was also cool, like that two years, I needed time to learn how to repent and learn how to function and get stable emotionally and mentally and spiritually on that level and it that two years was like the perfect amount of time for me to get stable and then was able to start this organization so so incredible like so incredible so tell me really quick if somebody wants to get involved in helping your organization what what should they do they can read up more about us on the turtleshelterproject.org is our website we also have social media, Turtle Shelter Project for Facebook and Instagram. People can find out through that and they can contact us through our website or our email, turtleshelterproject at gmail.com. 
but yeah, we're we're basically a traveling service circus. We come and we bring all the materials and supplies to wherever we're invited and the host will provide the helping hands, the space and the tables and we'll work for however long they want. So that is so incredible. I am so impressed. We had such a rough go trying to get this podcast going from technology issues to just all kinds of things. I know why, because you have such a powerful message and there's just going to be obstacles that happen to prevent your beautiful message from being, because Satan doesn't want people to hear this. You are such a light and it's so incredible what you're doing. And Thank you so much for taking the time with me and sharing your story. And thank you for just being brave enough to just overcome all the things you have and being willing to do what you do. I, I know that you probably have saved lives with your, with your nonprofit. And I mean, just telling your story is so powerful and I just appreciate you so much for coming on. Thank you. I, honestly don't feel like it's it's me or the nonprofit that saves lives i know without a doubt it's the atonement of jesus christ that saves lives the whole reason that we're making desks for homeless people is so that maybe they can stay on the planet a little bit longer until they can have their experience with god similar to what i had and so when we hand these out we hope that they feel it's a hug from god mostly Oh, that is so incredible. (laughs) I am just so touched by your story. So thank you you so much, Jen, for taking the time with me. Thank you. I appreciate you inviting me. It's been an honor. Hey guys, first off, I want to give you a heartfelt thank you to all of you that support the podcast. We wouldn't be able to get this message out without all of your help, so thank you so much. I've had a few questions come in from people that aren't on social media, so I just wanted to let you guys know that we do have a website. It's www.comebackpodcast.org. You can find all of our episodes here. Um, There's a list of our book club selections, and you can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Thanks again. We love you guys so much.